The current register really is not a serious solution to the problems with repressive regime interference. We need something with far more teeth. The EPP is using uh, Qatar Gate uh, as, a, as a sort of reason to start questioning and put under suspicion the workings of civil society. What is missing is uh, specific uh, action to make sure that all the lobbying efforts by repressive regimes are made visible. Today, the World Cup in Qatar is a proof, actually, of how sports diplomacy can achieve a historical transformation of a country with reforms that inspired the Arab world. Still some here are calling to discriminate them. They bully them and they accuse everyone that talks to them or engages of corruption. This is the now famous speech by Eva Kaili in the European Parliament. I'm Joanna Lausanne, comms officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, or CEO. And in this episode, I'll talk to my colleagues Kat Enger, Olivia Hudeman and Hans van Scharen about the corruption scandal and its consequences. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort was actually convicted for not registering properly in FARA and sent to jail. He had funneled millions through a lobbying vehicle called the European Centre for a Modern Ukraine. And surprise, surprise, that centre was based in Brussels. It had close ties to the toppled uh, Yanukovych regime. And from Brussels, it had contracted PR firms in the US for multi-million dollar contracts to represent the former Ukrainian ruling party. Now, in the EU transparency register, it had claimed it had a budget of a mere 10,000 euros. Obviously, nothing at all happened um, as a result of this failure to be honest or declare properly in the EU transparency register. In the US, Manafort ended up in jail. This is Kat giving a very clear example of how having a strong and legally binding lobby register can have real consequences when compared to the current EU voluntary register. FARA, which she mentioned, stands for Foreign Agents Registration Act, and it is the lobby transparency register in the US. It was created in 1938 when the US government started to worry about the influence of Nazi propaganda in national politics. But we'll get back to it in a second. First, Let's go to Hans and the origin of this case. Qatargate basically reached the outside world or came in with a bang on the 9th of December when the first arrests were made by the Belgian police and judiciary. But the affair actually started uh, almost a year earlier when secret services in several member states alerted the Belgian secret service that there was some dodgy business going on between certain regimes. Now we know it was Qatar and Morocco um, and uh, former politicians and and actual uh, politicians. Um, So basically what they did was to start uh, wiretapping certain people and they also did secret uh, operations, uh, meaning um, entering the apartment of former member of the European Parliament, Mr. Panzeri, And in that apartment, they basically found uh, hundreds of thousands of um, uh, euros in in banknotes stashed away under the bed and elsewhere. 
Pier Antonio Panzeri is a former MEP who is thought to have been at the center of the corruption scheme. There have been other arrests, notably that of Vice President of the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, as well as her partner Francesco Giorgi, who was an MEP assistant, and more recently the MEPs Mark Tarabella and Andrea Cosolino. Of Qatar gave us the tip of the iceberg, and it's also grabs the headlines because it sort of involves, you know, obvious criminality and and suitcases of money. But you know, what about an MP's second job, MEP's second job, uh, or a funded trip abroad, or a gift that isn't declared? You know, there's all these grey areas where they should be strict rules, and that shouldn't be happening. But it's much more like normalised and easy to easy to happen. Um, you know, you take an honorary board position and you get a nice trip or whatever it is. All of that stuff is going on constantly and it's much, much harder to track. Um, and then it's only when a big scandal erupts that that anyone sort of seems to be really paying attention. CEO has for almost a decade now been looking into human rights abusers hiring consultants and repressive regimes lobbying the EU using think tanks, front groups and third-party consultants, and we did an extensive report about it called Spin Doctors to the Autocrats. For example, we looked into Azerbaijan and all the different lobby vehicles it was using to influence the EU. Um, there were certainly MEPs who were accepting lavish gifts and um, luxury trips um, from uh, Azerbaijan. They actually went to describe an election there as free and fair and they were never sanctioned for not declaring their paid-for undeclared trips to Baku uh, to one of the most corrupt regimes in the world. And I think it turned out that actually there was a, a an almost $3 million slush fund that Azerbaijan had to influence um, European notables, kind of including politicians and, and all sorts of other people. And um, another story in that report is about um, the lobby consultancy paid for by the Kremlin. Um, that was G+. And it was basically a, a filled with people who had, had previously worked for the European Commission. So there was a sort of real revolving door there. One of their consultants sort of talked about, you know, giving Russia a chance to tell its story in Brussels and he was literally handing over letters from the Kremlin when um, the Crimea crisis happened in 2014 which contained threats um, about gas brinkmanship and, and um, cutting off gas Europe and things like that um, was giving those to European politicians and to the media um, anyway what you can see uh, what history tells us from these kinds of examples is that It's only when you get a really, really big crisis. For example, now, since the uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2022, suddenly the EU's like, oh, well, we can't have Russian lobbyists, <laughs> you know, um, we've got to ban them. Or Qatargate, suddenly it's like, oh, well, we better, we better look into things. Well, actually, what you need to have is a set of robust rules in place already. There's no point in reacting every time there's a crisis and trying to close the stable doors because the horse is gone. The horse is long gone. Roberta Metzola, president of the European Parliament, issued a reform agenda with 14 points to tackle Qatargate. The, the logic behind it was that these were things that the European Parliament 
could do by itself and relatively quickly. So of course that was very positive. Um, and the, in terms of the content, there were also uh, quite some valuable um, proposals in there. At least some of the key areas where change is really important, they were covered. But then, then there were some some important gaps as well. And the the big the big problem was very it was very weak on the enforcement of the rules, both current rules and and future rules. So as Kat would say, they're still trying to close the stable door after the horse has left. And by the way, that was Olivia Hudeman, and he will now talk about the positive aspects of Metal's proposals. So there, there was a proposal to curb um, the revolving door, um, which uh, many MEPs go through, where they, they go from being a, an elected uh, representative to be a lobbyist or a, a lobby advisor or in other ways help companies or, or corporate lobby groups with influencing the European Parliament. So Metzler did propose to restrict that. And the access that former MEPs have to the European Parliament would be restricted. So that is uh, very important. That's such a glaring uh, and uh, horrible situation that exists. Also, the intention to... Um, force MEPs to disclose all of their lobby meetings. So force all MEPs to disclose all of their lobby meetings is very positive. And uh, that, that's uh, that's really necessary. So it's, there is, uh, it's possible to scrutinize and, and see maybe some warning signs of some unhealthy relations with, with uh, lobbyists and, and repressive regimes, of course, in this case. A glaring example of a revolving door, in this case involving not only MEPs, but also former heads of state, can be found in our previous reports involving the United Arab Emirates. Kat will explain it better. One of the stories we found was a think tank called the Basola Institute, which is very interesting. It claims to be working on behalf of EU Gulf region relations as a whole. However, all of its... Uh, founders and institutional ties are with the UAE and there's no funding information available for it. But what's very interesting is in the wake of the Qatargate scandal, the Basala Institute's website went down. Um, however, we could see that it was still active because its Twitter account remained up for a while. So um, we think it actually appears to be a, com- uh, a combination of serious academic research with, you know, quite credible um, and academics involved in some cases, but also uh, of strategic communications. And what was really noticeable was it had on its honorary advisory board a network of exclusively conservative former heads of state, um, plus an ex-head of NATO. When we asked, it did not respond to any queries about whether the honorary board was paid or not but it's a real powerhouse of political figures. The chairman is former Spanish Prime Minister José María Aznar, um, former Irish President Mary MacAleese, um, former Prime Minister of France, François Foulon, uh, and Croatia, um, a former EU commissioner, um, and several MEPs are listed as guests of honour. One of these MEP guests of honour is Antonio López Estoriz White from the Spanish right-wing Partido Popular. He was also um, Secretary General of the European People's Party and also p- former personal advisor to Asnar. 
um, who I mentioned before as being on the board. And he's also been the chair of the EU-UAE um, friendship group since 2014. In 2019, he co-chaired an image-boosting session for the UAE to launch an exhibition inside the European Parliament that emphasized the kingdom's humanitarian actions around the world, achievements in women's rights, etc. There were no human rights concerns raised and there were no questions allowed at the event. And he actually shows a consistent pattern of either voting against critical language towards the UAE and Saudi Arabia or abstaining um, even when it means departing um, the EPP line. Let's take another break from our case studies, of which there are way too many, and back to Metalist proposals. So what is still missing there? What is missing is a specific uh, action to make sure that all the lobbying efforts by repressive regimes um, are made visible in the EU's tra- lobby transparency register. Um, so that is something that at the moment... Uh, is not properly uh, organized at all. There is a there are there is in the rules the obligation that lobbying for non-EU governments has to be disclosed, but in practice it doesn't happen. It's not enforced. There are no checks on it. So in the transparency register, you just you can find hardly anything about lobbying on behalf of non-EU governments, let alone repressive regimes, which of course would be the most um, likely to try to hide their their lobbying efforts. So, yeah, so there we do need um, something comparable to the US and Australian legislation on lobbying by foreign, on behalf of foreign governments. And whether it's in in a separate new law or it's through a a major overhaul of the lobby transparency register. So, so these, uh, the lobbyists who represent these governments cannot escape uh, their transparency obligations. Uh, yeah, that we'll have to see, but it's, it's that that's a crucial lesson from this whole scandal, obviously. So um, an overhaul of the transparency register is absolutely a key demand as well, uh, because that is at the moment um, such a mess. Uh, the EU's lobby transparency register is described as mandatory, but in practice it's full of holes and there are so many lobbyists that either avoids registration or um, disclose unreliable or very limited um, and 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 um, uh, misleading information. So that that has to change. Otherwise, uh, such a register doesn't make much sense. So this is a key demand also for the negotiations that are about to uh, about to start. Particularly, consultancies, think tanks, and front groups need to be transparent about who they are representing and how much money is involved. Lobby consultancies are often hired to whitewash the image of a regime, usually to a specific end, for example, a trade deal, a visa deal, to lift sanctions, or to encourage investment. To give a more recent example that we haven't actually published on, but um, I think Morocco is is very much implicated in in the Cattlegate scandal. Um, So a very clear example of, in this case, actually, a law firm, Alba and Geiger, um, represented Morocco, um, and it claims that it saved the uh, EU-Moroccan trade deal from a collapse because there were complaints um, that... There were kind of part of the trade deal, included in the trade deal, were fisheries and agriculture products from Western Sahara, um, which is you know, occupied by Morocco. 
and um, Abra and Geiger facilitated signing a new protocol, they, they claim. Um, so you can see there very clearly the role that um, a private lobby consultancy has, um, has played and in doing so has run roughshod over a kind of very serious uh, human rights issue in Western Sahara. Another recent case we have studied is that of Saudi Arabia. Um, we actually had to work with a whistleblower in that case because there was no evidence in the transparency register of anyone lobbying on behalf of Saudi Arabia because as a controversial client, the company had um, had hidden the fact, even though their company actually existed in the transparency register. So you can find all these stories on our website. But... Um, yeah, briefly, I mean, they were representing the Saudi Arabian embassy to the EU. Um, so things like um, defending against criticism that Saudi Arabia had links to promoting terrorism, um, portraying Saudi Arabia as actually a victim of terrorism, um, promoting MBS as a reformer and key ally. Um, they were working and um, working to present Saudi Arabia as a key provider of humanitarian aid in Yemen, which was quite extraordinary. In fact, it was kind of a topsy-turvy world where um, Saudi Arabia was in reality spending vast sums to wage war in Yemen. It was blockading food supplies, bombing its water systems, causing actually a massive cholera outbreak. Um, and this company, MSL Brussels, was portrayed um, was portraying the country primarily as occupied with humanitarian concerns, food aid, cholera clinics, um, rehabilitating child soldiers, etc., etc., etc. So there was a considerable quantity of material that it produced focused on this supposed humanitarian aid, distracting attention away from the fact that Saudi Arabia had actually created many, most of these uh, humanitarian crises in the first place. There are some case studies that can be read in detail in our website and show how the current EU transparency register is so incomplete when so many entities are allowed to work in the dark. Kat will give us another blatant example. So we, for example, recently looked into the lobbying of China um, in the EU in the last couple of years. And, you know, there's obviously nothing surprising about a global superpower uh, flexing its soft power. But what was really alarming was the way so many think tank players, policy wonks, lobby consultancies in Europe, they've been all too keen to play the role of hired gun for what is basically a highly authoritarian regime. And... Um, you know, China's growing wealth and willingness to spend to achieve its goals makes it easier for these lobbyists to ignore this inconvenient fact. For example, we saw lots of uh, European tech lobbyists, for example, happily representing or working for a country ranked last in the world, I think, <laughs> in internet freedom. So, um, so like we say, you know, we're not surprised that China's lobbying. It's just that our question is, why is this happening under the radar? The public clearly has a right to know what paid lobbyists of all stripes, including those working on behalf of non-EU member state governments, are up to and how they might be influencing our politicians and our futures. Um, and we continue to be denied that right by the EU's own failure of lobby transparency rules. 
And to give just one example of the failure of those lobby transparency rules, um, we know in the in the US that China, the Chinese government is spending over nine and a half million dollars in 2022 on influencing operations. And if you go into the EU transparency register, there is absolutely no sign whatsoever that China is paying anyone uh, to lobby in the EU at all. And that obviously really stretches uh, credibility. It's also a reflection of the fact that the US has quite stringent rules on foreign governments and their agents being legally required to register and there are actual legal sanctions and enforcement for not doing that compared to the voluntary situation we have, the unenforced um, EU transparency register that we have in the EU. FARA is the US foreign lobby register that is mandatory and that we spoke about at the beginning of this episode. Paul Manafort, about whom Kat was speaking before, who was famous for whitewashing repressive regimes and dictators, and who was actually known in Brussels as the Count of Monte Cristo, because the register is mandatory, he got arrested in the US, but he wasn't even charged in Europe. What's really interesting is because it's legally um, it's legally required to register, and there are literally legal sanctions if you do not, um, and you have to publish your contracts, it gives us an insight. It often gives us more insight into what's happening, for example, in Brussels sometimes than, 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 than we have through our own register, which is really a crazy situation. The idea, and it was ironic because the actual lobby vehicle that was being used was based in Brussels, and there was a huge egregious failure, you know, to report in the transparency register in the EU, but obviously there was nothing they could do. There was nothing they did do. And um, I think, you know, that for me, that was the biggest contrast between the two, the two kind of lobby transparency approaches. It was just like, couldn't be more clear, that contrast. And then because um, obviously FAR is not ideal, it's got loopholes, it, it's only as good, any, any of these regimes are only as good as um, how well they're enforced and monitored. But because Manifor was was chastised so severely and, and and faced criminal charges. As a result, a huge new number of uh, registrants were entered into the US FARA register um, in a sort of post hoc panic of, oh gosh, right, we could actually get <laughs> in trouble. Um, so only it just shows how, you know, showing that the possibility of enforcement also has a really powerful um, effect. And we have no such tools in place. There are many more examples of how we can find more information about the European lobbying in the US register than in the European one. And I'll give you another example, which is much more recent, and it's from the investigation we did into the United Arab Emirates. And this was a contract um, between the National Media Council of the UAE and the PR firm Project Associates, which is headquartered in London with an office in Brussels. The contract dates from 2017, but um, Project Associates hadn't actually registered in the EU Transparency Register until later than that contract started, and it had not registered that the UAE was its client. 
However, if you looked at the US um, registry, Project Associates does record the National Media Council of the UAE as an ongoing client. It was still active as of uh, 2020. And it was signed by the Director and Head of International and Political Advisory Practices of the Brussels Office of Project Associates, which is described as rendering services directly to the client. And the FARA filing is complete enough to disclose even the media placements involved in the contracts. What we can find are files which show stories that were placed in the European press, including Brussels-based um, New Europe and The Independent. And these were placed by SCL Social, which is a controversial data mining and online disinformation firm that was subcontracted by Project Associates. And SCL Social is a sister company to the more notorious Cambridge Analytica, which you might have heard about. And even when companies and lobbyists are registering, the EU Transparency Register is so understaffed that nobody really checks if the data is right and nobody is punishing them when it isn't. So our colleague Vicky Can has um, filed a complaint to the EU Transparency Register concerning around 430 entries. These are general entries, not specific to repressive regimes. And the Register replied to her recently and told her that when they checked, the overall result was that only 3% of those entries were correct. So beyond any vague promises of better monitoring, it's showing that the current register really is not a serious solution to the problems with repressive regime interference. We need something with far more teeth. We're almost at the end of this episode, but let's circle back to Qatargate. How have the suggested reforms been welcomed at the European Parliament? The proposals were made so they came before the Christmas break, and at first they were welcomed. Uh, generally, there was there was not uh, there were there were not. Uh, any or, or hardly any MEPs speaking out against those proposals uh, at that at that point in time. Uh, but uh, as we already feared, um, we are now starting to see a pushback by right-wing MEPs who are basically consistently against more transparency and accountability around uh, uh, the operations of MEPs, the activities of MEPs and their interactions with lobbyists. And they are now um, uh, clearly trying to get the foot on the brake and uh, limits the scope of the reports, of the sorry of the reforms that are being uh, that are being discussed. Um, so yeah, conservative MEPs are uh, are now speaking out. They've waited a bit till the I guess till the attention for the scandal uh, went down. And um, so we are now quite, uh, yeah, I am now quite worried about uh, whether the, the right lessons will in the end be drawn from this scandal. And there will be the overhaul and uh, of, the, of the rules around lobbying that is needed and the, and the strong enforcement. So we really require a major effort by civil society and by, uh, by the MEPs who are committed to, uh, to once and for all um, uh, solve these problems in the European Parliament. To, um, to to follow through and make sure that that there is a, a major a major meaningful change and that uh, and that right wing uh, MEPs don't uh, don't get away uh, and manage with once again because it would be uh, uh, yet another example of uh, of of the of right wing MEPs blocking transparency and ethics rules in the European Parliament and thereby 
uh, increasing the opportunity the uh, the opportunity of of MEPs to to have unhealthy uh, relations with with lobbyists and other uh, others trying to influence the European Parliament and and increasing the risk of, of scandals like this to happen. So, yeah, it will be hard work in the coming uh, in the coming months. I personally am very worried because what we see already now is that in the first month there was a sort of collective outroar uh, in the parliament. There was a resolution voted in the plenary backed by almost all political groups uh, calling for very, um, you know, strict measures, uh, new rules and and, and, and uh, uh, enforcement of those rules, uh, etc. Now we are one month later and we see already the backtracking, notably by the biggest political family of the European Union, which is the EPP, the, the Christian Democrats or Conservatives. Um, in many ways, they are already trying to weaken a bit the uh, follow-up, the political follow-up uh, uh, from Qatargate. But there is another very worrying trend, and that is that the EPP is using uh, Qatargate uh, as a as a sort of reason to start questioning and put under suspicion the workings of civil society. And they basically say, well, you see, there was an NGO uh, indeed uh, created by Mr. Panzeri called Fight Impunity. A very Orwellian and uh, ironic name, Nespa. Um, and um, they use, so the EPP is using this to finally push through uh, something that they already want to do for years, and that is uh, um, uh, sort of put under suspicion the functioning of civil society. And this is a politically a very worrying trend because we all know that independent media, independent judges, uh, an independent civil society is super important uh, for checks and balances in a, in a, in a, in a well-functioning democracy. Regarding FARA, the US is not the only country to have something like it. Canada and the UK are considering it. Australia has a good system called the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. Of course, all these systems have problems and full lobby transparency is not a magic wand. But it does help us to understand what the people employing these lobbyists want who they are influencing, who they are employing, how much money they are paying, who they are targeting and what their issues are. That scrutiny is essential to tackle corporate capture. And we have come to the end of this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it wherever you listen to podcasts and you can also rank it there and please share it on social media. Until next time, bye-bye.